There's a place here at the table Your coats go by the door You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor I hope you wore elastic Cause your waistband's gonna get tight Take time's done, we're having a night Hi guys, I'm Sophie And I'm Ari, and you're listening to Having a Night, a podcast dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. We have such a great episode today. We have an incredible guest. As you know, we have Maury Rubinon, founder of City Bakery, a much, much beloved bakery in New York City that recently had to close. Uh, This was a real treat for us. If you listened to, I forget what episode. Soph, do you remember? Sophie read the closing letter the tearfully. It was beautiful. Yes. There were also many, I was remembering this today, that there were many episodes in which what I ate that week was a city bakery hot chocolate. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> and many times when I'm just, when I've been around your neighborhood, call you, text like, hey, what's up? Where are you? You're like, oh, I'm just strolling around with my hot chocolate. I mean, speaking to him to me was like speaking to, you know, to a God. So it was very (laughs) exciting. We really hope you guys enjoy it. You will. It's not even a question. So I won't even say that. But before we dive in, Ari, what did you eat this week? Okay. This week, last night, I made chicken tikka masala for the first time. Um, (gasps) For some people I'm working for, I've never made it before. They requested it. I never would have thought to make it. Uh-huh. Um, it was so good. It was a lot, a lot of prep. Like you have to marinate, you make like this paste with all of these spices. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. I just think for me, learning to cook with Indian spices and Indian techniques, I think for me is like the next, next level, like next frontier. Like I really, really, really want to learn. I think it's so complex and delicious. And I would never think of mixing these spices and then bam, put them over some heat and it's like transportive. Oh, it is actually transportive. I have not had Indian food in a very long time. Um, my dad cooks a lot of really good Indian food from Madhur Jaffrey. She's like the most amazing yes. Indian cookbook writer. I love, we have so many of her books and they're so incredible. And also what's so incredible about it is like the range of what you can cook and is still considered quote unquote Indian food. You know, it's like such, I mean, a flavor from Kerala, of course, is going to be completely different from a flavor from the North is going to be different from anyway. Oh, it's so good. Ooh, I want Indian. Yes. Okay. What about you? What did you eat this week? Okay. I want to talk about something that I ate this week that was a disappointment because we came into the city and we have not had Chinese food in quite some time. So we decided to order in Chinese food and we really wanted Peking duck. So we ordered Peking duck from a place that is famous for Peking duck. And instead of having like the classic, really thin chunbing pancakes that they usually Mm -hmm. come, they had Uh gigantic flour tortillas. I'm not kidding. They had like 10 inch flour tortillas from a package. I was in shock. (laughs) Yes, that is, that is less than ideal. However, I mean, I love a flour tortilla. I love a flour tortilla, but it's very hard to taste the duck through the thickness of a flour tortilla. You know, like the classic, it's so thin, it's transparent, not like a quarter of an inch thick and opaque. I mean, it wasn't actually a quarter of an inch thick, but yes. anyway, I was very 
upset. Cause you know, when you're looking forward to the exact version of something so much, you know what, that'll just teach me to get my hopes up. Yeah. It's I'm the same way. It's I've got to get my hopes down. Abandon all hope. Exactly. (laughs) Everything will go better. Ugh. Well, without further ado, guys, we uh, please enjoy this fantastic interview that we had with the one and the only Maury Rubin of City Bakery. We've been getting so many people saying that we have to do a chocolate-centric episode. And I was like, well, this seems like the opportunity to ask the wonderful Maury Rubin to come on. That's nice. You know, that's good. I just, I went downstairs uh 10 minutes ago when i came back there was a package waiting for me and it was um a box of chocolates <gasps> hey so, what kind a whole bunch of esoteric cool chocolates actually white car- white chocolate cardamom i make that Ooh. Uh, dark chocolate with sunflower coconut nougatine um, wow milk chocolate bergamot we could I mean, truly do an episode where Maury Rubin just reads na- like different flavors of chocolate. You have such a seriously. soothing voice. It's like the Steve Martin reads the phone booth. Uh, right. the phone book. Phone book. <laughs> right. I guess just to start, I'm so curious about how you got into chocolate in the first place. I mean, I assume, you know, every kid loves chocolate, but how did you really become such an aficionado? I walked sideways into it, I would say. Um, I think one of the, one of my dirty secrets for years and years and years of city bakery time was I didn't love chocolate. Um, so there, but there's a chocolate room. What do you mean? You didn't love chocolate. (laughs) That was was my, that was my shopkeeper hat. That wasn't my chocolate hat. That was my shopkeeper hat. Wow. I feel like actually I should reverse and say part of what I loved so much about city bakery is that the savory was just as important as the sweet. In fact, maybe more important. And that the savory dishes were just, were incredibly delicious. So are you actually more of a savory person than a sweet guy? Nope, not at all. Not, not, not at all. And it's funny, that was in my, uh, I would say, tactical hat, the savory. That was just the fact that when I opened City Bakery, I was a TV director at the time. I wanted to bake. I wanted to have a bakery. I didn't know if a full-fledged bakery could make a living in New York City at the time. To yeah. me, the the world of dessert at that time was Haagen-Dazs. And like, that's what people who knew they loved dessert and wanted to spend a little bit of money on something that was special it was just a world of Haagen-Dazs. And the, 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 the world of New York City bakeries, I didn't grow up in New York, but for anyone that grew up in New York, the, all of the neighborhood bakeries and all of the, the bakeries that were part of the food world of New York were all the family, multi-generation bakeries from yesteryear mm-hmm. and, and then some. And they were all going away, which was, which was why I thought, Okay, it's time for someone to do a cool bakery. It's someone. And what, it's, it's it's time for someone to do a, a nice, an updated bakery. Sorry, I was just going to say this is 1990-ish. Yeah, it was 1990. Okay. I didn't know if a full-on bakery with just pastry could win the day. Um, I'm a sweet tooth. I I I'm a sweet tooth, and I 
I'd be happy to be in a room that was 100% pastry, butter, sugar, and eggs and chocolate. <laughs> I'd be very, very happy like that. Um, but the same, so the savory part was really just literally as a, I'll make it as, as unsexy as possible. It was a, ta- <laughs> it was a tactical device to pay the bills. You know, it was a strategic way to make sure that, um, that my bakery that, was run by someone who had never baked before and had never owned a business before could make a living. Um, and I knew the neighborhood. I was more sure that the neighborhood needed a couple salads and sandwiches and just good food for lunch. I was more sure yeah. about that than if they needed a Milky Way tart. Right. <laughs> it worked out. It worked they out. They needed both. They needed both. <laughs> That was something that you guys did so well was that, yes, I'm sure that our neighborhood desperately needed a good salad and a good macaroni and cheese, et cetera, but you guys actually did it really well. You didn't seem to cut corners. So were you developing those recipes yourself? Did you have like, how did you come to develop all of the recipes that you guys had? I did all of the bakery and that was my sort of um, total immersion and like I'd say five years of being head first deep into pastry and and chocolate and and really hot chocolate too. The day the bakery opened, there were two pizzas, um, sort of yuppie Wolfgang Puck pizzas back back then. Um, There were two pizzas. There was a mozzarella basil sandwich on focaccia, homemade focaccia. There were two salads and the ingredients for that came from green market. Um, And there was a soup and that was the savory menu. And that was that, like that was literally the total um, savory menu. The first five years of city bakery, I made all the savory food um, and I made all the pastry and the savory food. I would say my guiding light was Chez Panisse and Alice Waters and just my head stuck in those cookbooks. Um, so that sort of drove the savory. And then in 1995, um, there was a customer whose name was Eileen Rosen, who said that she was about to graduate from cooking school and could she do her internship there? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had never done an internship and I, and I said, uh, sure. So Eileen came and did a, an internship and Eileen really uh, created the footprint of the savory food at City Bakery that you knew and loved for years and years and years to come. And when, so when did hot chocolate become, was it first a seasonal thing? And then when did it become kind of this, the famous thing that we think of now? It actually very early, I think very early and for me in a really special way, because I, first of all, from a time and like time and place, this was pre-internet. This was pre-Instagram. So it actually, you know, it, it became something special, like in like, like, in the time of like the, what feels like the Pony Express, um, Um, (laughs) which, which, you know, I take, like I have more pride about that. And, and it was really, I think everything about the bakery was in an old New York way of just word of mouth more than anything. And in a, in a way that I still feel like the most affirming 
measure of the neighborhood, the people, the city embraces you because they're just, they're just, they're talking about you and they're sharing you. And the way, Ari, that whoever had said to you, just go there for lunch, mm-hmm. like that, like that's, you know, really, um, that'll always be for me the more um, memorable part of how, uh, you know, what would be called gaining traction, you know, today. Yeah. The, but the hot chocolate was on the first menu and it was called real hot chocolate. It was called real hot chocolate. People talked about that, the hot chocolate right away, actually. And I was um, brand new at running a bakery, at making pastry. I had only been baking at that point for a couple of years. So Jesus. my first like 10 years of City Bakery was my, my like self-education. I had learned to bake in France, but the way the French expect you to learn Pastry is the way, like if you went to uh, like Johns Hopkins for surgery, like you're going to do this for 10 years and then we're going to say you're, you're good to go. Right. Um, So my pastry education was very much um, learning on the job for years and years and years. And I think my ability to stop and say, wow, that's people really like that wasn't, you know, I was just concerned about filling up the store every day. And also creatively, I was in such a great place then and just thinking about new stuff and thinking about new stuff. But I knew the hot chocolate was really popular from the very beginning. I started sort of working on flavors. The second year of City Bakery, I invited a couple customers, I think it was 11, to come to the bakery on a Friday night to taste a couple bizarre flavors I had made and it was like bourbon hot chocolate and chili pepper hot chocolate and vanilla bean hot chocolate and ginger hot chocolate and um, uh, banana peel hot chocolate was one of the first and people just they loved them and that was that was the encouragement and that was really the start of my becoming obsessed about hot chocolate. So from someone who didn't like chocolate to becoming totally obsessed with hot chocolate. You know (laughs) I would. I was more obsessed with it than I even liked it. Huh. I, I came to. I came to like really. I think fully appreciate and love chocolate five or six years ago. Wow. Was your obsession about like getting the right texture and the right balance of like sweetness and bitterness, or like because that hot chocolate is extraordinary because it's. It's like you're in France, but you're in the middle of New York City, but it has that texture that like, I imagine was really hard to come by in the States before you started making it. So was, was that part of your obsession was just like figuring out how to get it exact? When you're, when you're putting things like, like blackberries against dark chocolate or um, vanilla bean against dark chocolate, which is, I, I think really this like magical process of alchemy and, and a, like a that's experimentation and process that I really came to love. I'm not one of those people who ever says like, I spent six months working on this recipe. Mm-hmm. I, I, to me, that's, um, that, that's, I just, I, I came to my flavors and my finished product really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. all the time, like really quickly. But there's a fine line in, in nailing down the balance of something. 
it, it's when you're, you know, dark chocolate is this like anchor and it has these properties that are pretty um, uh, dogmatic and mm -hmm. it, um, it doesn't necessarily give uh, so much. But one of my early flavors was bourbon hot chocolate. And I remember being um, blown away by what the chocolate did to the bourbon. Here's chocolate and it tastes like chocolate. Here's bourbon, it tastes like bourbon. Put them together and it really was like one plus one equals 10. Mm -hmm. It was just this completely different, it transcended both of what you would know as this is the chocolate and this is the bourbon. And that's the that's been sort of my guide through the years of like um, trying to come up with flavors that they're like the choreography in the ingredients turns into something that is like, I didn't know that existed until I started tasting it and started working with it. And I've never stopped that process. Like I'm still on that process. Like now, like mm -hmm. in my kitchen at home now, I'm still on that process. And um, one other part about the texture, for example, the original hot chocolate was made with, um, with, milk and cream from a place called Glen's Foot Dairy, which was this 200 year old family farm in upstate New York that had become, it was like a mainstay Catskill supplier. I called them and, you know, it was a little bit like calling like, it's like calling like a, like a movie theater in the middle of like Kansas. And they, and like you say like, what time's the next show? And they say like, what time can you get here? Um, right. <laughs> Yeah, these people were like, how did you find us? Like, how did you find us? And um, they delivered milk and cream to City Bakery. And that was its own part of the wonderfulness of that hot chocolate. That cream was like farmstead cream that if you, if you open it and, and smell it, like suck your nose in it, you would really Ugh. think, most people would, would think like, it was like, oh my God, that's no good. But it was like, it smelled like the barnyard. Yeah. And it was, it was rich and delicious. And the mouthfeel was, it was heavyweight. It was really it's something awesome. special. <sighs> so that was also a big part of why that hot chocolate from the very beginning became something that people, that resonated with people. I, of course, was doing my research about you, and I was reading up on birdbath bakeries and how you had really tried to make it as green as possible. Right. And I've been going to birdbath, of course, since they existed, but I didn't even know that actually being green was such a big part of what was, you know, behind your motive of making it. And I'm a person right. who I think about that stuff a lot, but I would love to hear a little bit about how you made birdbath bakeries green. I mean, about packaging, about all of these things that, you know, our world is so, especially now with COVID, veering towards takeout so much, that how do you keep things green and eco-friendly in spite of that? Right. Um, I can talk forever about that stuff. <laughs> Four and a half <laughs> hours. <Sorry. laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Ari, I know. Yeah. That's like a where to begin thing. Um you know, like all the flour was organic forever. 
And the flour was coming from a mill in outside of Ithaca, New York. And uh, it was called Community Mill and Bean. And people who were like the health food, like Birkenstock crowd, they were, they were like when it would come up that all the flour was organic and a lot of the sugar was organic, people would say like, oh my God, like why don't you say that? And I actually, I learned early on that, that it was, it cut both ways and organic at the time was so new that <laughs> it was not necessarily a positive for a bunch of people. It really, right. really wasn't. And right. it was also assumed to cost more. So if you, once you said organic, there was for at least one out of every two or three customers there was an instant prejudice about, oh, this is going to cost too much. This is going to be too much. When in fact, I really did absorb those costs. And we, we really did. Um, the prices were the prices because I thought the food was so good. Mm-hmm. Not because the, the cost of goods was 20% more, 30% more than normal flour, normal sugar. But I learned early that the need was to communicate deliciousness. And the particulars, I wanted to be connected to the green market for sure. I wanted everyone to know that um, we were going out there and buying stuff. And this, these strawberries were in the field yesterday. And there was no totally. bakery. That, that every other bakery in, the New, in New York at the time, those strawberries came out of cans. It was canned fruit or, or bottled uh, like sugar syrup pears and strawberries and peaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like your desire to bring fresh fruit into the bakeries of New York City, did that come from what you had studied in France or did that just come from divine inspiration? It's funny. They were, they were still in the can. They were, it was just superior cans. It was just, yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. Wow. Um, I did not know that. The cans were sort of bronze. (laughs) Gorgeous. They were good. I bet they were good. Um, I'm going to go back to Alice Waters. That had a lot to do with my being inspired by Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. Yeah. Had you, had you spent time at Chez Panisse or like working nope. with her or anything, or you've just eaten nope. there and just knew how fucking good it was? It's funny. I, I became obsessed with her cookbooks and I'm not such a cookbook person. And, um, but I read those cookbooks like as if they were mystery novels. Um, and, it was just that philosophy was was so um, inspiring to me. So simple yeah. as that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't emphasize enough how brand new fresh fruit in a bakery in 1990 New York City was. Really, the, the idea of fresh fruit, brand new, and the idea of keeping it on a menu, being faithful to the seasonality, so those strawberries in the, the strawberries on these right now for six weeks, when these are yep. gone, we'll see you 11 months from now. Mm-hmm. That was a bizarre, like, what the hell do you mean? What, what do you mean? I was here two weeks ago. Right. And it was like saying, I understand. Like, do you know that strawberries actually just grow like this what time of year? And that's that. So there right. was this, this, for me, like beautiful educational component to it, not to sound um, uh, snobby about it, but there really was this like 
we were, I think, educating food loving New Yorkers about um, a certain way to approach making pastry. It's also it, so nice because besides it connecting you to uh, the the local land and the freshness and just the earth, really uh, connecting, when you said we, I wanted to be connected to the green market, I think it also just establishes you as part of the community. I think that the green market is has really been the soul of the neighborhood of Union Square and like really it's like beating heart. Being connected to that for a business and to be a startup business that grew along with it, um, it, it was a gigantic part of how City Bakery, I think, grew. And it was one, of, one entire level of meaning for City Bakery to be connected to Green Market. And I mean, I was so touched by the note in the window of City Bakery when it closed. I, I just thought it was so beautiful and, and perfect. And it speaks so much to what I think is, you know, disappearing about the city. But like, how did it feel as, as such, a, such an integral part of that patchwork to watch it change? And did it feel enlivening and exciting? Or did you know from the beginning, like, oh, this kind of feels like a death knell, to put it grimly? Right. It didn't feel like a death knell ever. I think it, it, there, was a, there was a moment in time where it felt much less special. Like the growth mm -hmm. was not adding something special to what I thought was such a special place. Yeah. Um, but I just I want to say about the note first. It, it's really it heartens me to hear you say that the note was itself special because um, yeah, just was. Um, it, it, you know that that's a big deal here. So thank you for that. Some people every now and then still uh, um, stop me on the street and even in a mask, which amazes me, and um, say something about that note. But I think that the neighborhood changing, I feel like in my lifetime, I, there's, there's not going to be more than a couple things that I know as well as like every inch of that neighborhood. Yeah. For a period of, of 28 years and nine months. I like stood on the street um, watching that neighborhood go by mm -hmm. and like watching this part of the world go by and evolve and change and grow. And um, in a way, it's amazing. It's, it's an amazing to have watched it grow up and like to see a part of New York City um, evolve like that was just it i uh, it that's incredibly special for me i thought that union square became more and more and more special for years and years and years and years and years and then one day i thought eh, you know what uh, it's this is not so special anymore can i bring bring us back to hot chocolate for one yeah, quick second yeah, yeah. was there ever a moment where you so for our listeners who don't know, City Bakery had the most unbelievable homemade marshmallows that were just like covered in confectioner's sugar and just so perfect. Did you ever think about doing whipped cream or like what was the genesis of the marshmallow versus whipped cream or? Such a good question. Oh, thank Such you. Such a good question. <laughs> it is. Literally, no. I never thought about marshmallows versus whipped cream. Um, I only thought about homemade marshmallows. and. <laughs> 
I only uh, ever uh, thought about homemade marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the better parts of City Bakery lore or homemade marshmallow lore mm-hmm. was there was a story on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal had used to have um, this one column that was like the quirky like news feature article each day. And that story one day was about who brought homemade marshmallows to New York City first. Maury Rubin at City Bakery, someone named Martha Stewart, who was ah. just becoming Bruce Springsteen. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and a pastry chef named Wayne Brackman. And Wayne was the pastry chef at Mesa Grill. And Wayne was coincidentally a City Bakery customer. So this was way back. This was in, it was in 1993 that I thought, okay, what's next for this hot chocolate? And it was, it, it was homemade marshmallows for sure. So I started making homemade marshmallows first and they became a thing. And that was that. I never, ever, ever, ever. Um, it's interesting you're asking about whipped cream because I actually, I never thought about whipped cream for my hot chocolate until winter of 2019. When you were closing. When, when, when I was closing and I was starting to think about a new chocolate business that would be hot chocolate centric. Mm-hmm. And then I took a space on Bleecker Street and I knew right away that it was going to be the space equipment wise and fixture wise was not conducive to my making marshmallows. So that was the point where I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to make, I'm going to make flavored. Whipped Wait, we have to pause though. So what kind of equipment for those of us who have never endeavored to make a homemade marshmallow, what, what do you need, especially to produce on a mass scale? Um, you need a, a sauce pot, a thermometer, a candy thermometer, mm-hmm. um, Marshmallows are really old-fashioned sugar cookery, um, uh-huh. sort of. So, like cotton candy, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. With you egg just, whites, right? No egg whites. No oh my egg. god, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> no, don't be. No, that's the go-to that you're you're in the. Most people believe egg whites. It's sugar. It's, it's just, just sugar. It's, it's just sugar and a touch of gelatin, uh-huh. and you cook the sugar to 248 degrees, which is the reason why you should not endeavor to make marshmallows at home because 248 degrees is in a liquid boiling medium is a bad idea in your home kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, So you cook sugar and then you pour it into a mixer with a whisk. The whisk incorporates air. Mm -hmm. And that air becomes opaque and then it becomes white. And that's why you think it's reasonably think it's egg whites. Um, wow. So it becomes taffy like, and then it's, and it's gooey and messy and it stretches and pulls and it sticks on your fingers. Um, a little bit of confectioner sugar and a touch of cornstarch um, will keep it off your stuck to your unstuck to your fingers Mm -hmm. and then it sits for about a day and it sets and there's your homemade marshmallow oh my god wow wow 
So you came to Wonderbond. So Wonderbond was your. Well, Ari and I are both having our minds blown. So you started Wonderbond. Wow. Started Wonderbond. I didn't get to go, which is one of the greater tragedies of COVID and my life at the moment. But um, what was it? What were the whipped cream flavors? Are you coming back? I don't know. G- give us the juice yeah. that you can. Um, so it's really all about hot chocolate okay. and, and cold chocolate. And I am coming back in a certain way. It's the pandemic is just the reason why it seems like it's gone away, but, um, and it's on pause for sure right now. But, um, the process was a hot chocolate, uh, loving city bakery customer approached Mm -hmm. me after I closed and he told me what, um, how sad he was that he was losing his favorite hot chocolate. And he's not a food world person. He's a tech world person. Mm. And he said that he grew up um, loving chocolate and chocolate had, there was this connection between it with him and his grandfather over chocolate. So it had special meaning to him. And would I ever be interested in, if, if I was interested in talking about a chocolate company, he always wanted to be part of a chocolate company. So we started a company called the Wonder Bun Chocolate Company. That menu, I started to do um, whipped creams, all these flavored whipped creams, um, honey whipped cream, uh, smoked, a bunch of like smoked espresso salt, uh, whiskey sugar whipped cream, um, rum whipped cream, uh, matcha whipped cream, uh, cinnamon whipped cream, and just mixing flavors so it actually like 28 years after i started working on flavors now i had this like big branch of a tree that i got to like circle back to the trunk of the tree and start mixing and matching again and um one of the things i want to do now is create a line of flavored whipped creams well i'm so happy to hear that wonderbond is coming back i mean that's a that is very heartening to hear what thank you what i'm working on is a package is mm-hmm. is finally after all these years putting my hot chocolate and cold chocolate also that's one big change is um spending just as much time on a cold chocolate drink um and also a big difference from city bakery one new change is plant-based um mm chocolate drinks uh-huh. that I was doing a bunch of experimenting with at uh, Wonder Bun. Um, so the, the, the main purpose is to create a packaged product that you can walk into your neighborhood uh, market or grocery store or supermarket, wherever, and um, pull a container of Wonder Bun off the shelf and shake it and open it up and so for until we can get our hands on some wonder bun and while we are still in this moment of (laughs) of shutdown how could one make uh the best hot chocolate at home great question ari thank you great question really good chocolate one of the things that i've been doing is exploring all of the tiny tiny craft chocolate makers that have sprouted up around the country 
over the last uh, 10 years. Um, there's so many cool, high quality, experimental, fabulous um, chocolate makers yeah. that give you the starting point to make hot chocolate. Um, mm -hmm. They would say, no, eat, just eat my bar of hot chocolate, please. Um, and that's fair because it's worthy chocolate. But you just start, get great chocolate, like get really well-made chocolate, whether it's dark chocolate or milk chocolate, that's completely whatever persuasion chocolate you may be. And that includes <laughs> white chocolate. Um, I, mm -hmm. I love making white chocolate hot chocolate and I'm making more and more of it. And I, I love white chocolate hot chocolate. So just you start with that. And I would say use as um, you both know that I'm of the ultra rich, unctuous. This yes. is, this is like a, you know, this is mouthfeel and then some, and this yeah. is rich and, and uh, luxurious in my mouth. Yes. Um, so use uh, some cream or I, at this point, I would say, um, you know, coconut cream and coconut mm. um, milk. And even if you go down the plant-based world of like oat milk, mm -hmm. hemp milk turns out mm -hmm. to be rich with weight to it. Yeah. Um, just add, you just add those to chocolate until it starts to look like, oh my God, that looks like it might be city bakery hot chocolate. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And do you just do it over a really low heat? Do you do a double boiler? Is can you just throw it in a little pot? <laughs> um, add the liquid to the chocolate. Don't add just whether you heat up the liquid, whether it's in a sauce pot okay. or in a microwave, is totally fine. Heat it up until it's hot, 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 like to your finger. It should be about 140, mm -hmm. 160 degrees. Um, okay. And don't put the chocolate into that. Put that into the chocolate. To the chocolate. And then there's one trick about something at city bakery that you both would know which was that aerated foaminess yeah so that was always part of the pleasure and that's a little frother yes um, was it a so frother or an immersion blender immersion blender does the trick that's what oh you my want. god yeah. it's okay. funny because i used to always see them taking out a huge immersion blender and like didn't right. know what was i never thought about what was going on because i was so excited wow right. <laughs> <laughs> that's such good excitement that's that's excitement that it knocks out your sort of uh but i don't even care right. i'm just like oh. your logical brain right. right yeah but it affects your critical thinking yeah that's exciting oh my sure. god yeah. well it was such a treat to talk to you i can't even tell you i mean we're both huge fans thank you it's so thank nice you. to talk to both of you really it's so much affection i really appreciate it i really do wow I mean, I feel wow. like we actually say wow after every interview that we have, but that one was a real wow. He's an incredible, incredible person. And yeah. the love that he has and the passion that he has for his food, that's what made it so successful. And yeah. I loved what he said about, you know, or what, what you both kind of said about uh, the uh, virtue, what is it? Virtue. Virtue um, signaling. Signaling, which is so on trend right now. But when you are, when you really just are aiming for delicious, like, yeah, usually the, the ingredients that you get are local and organic, you know? So everything was just coming from this place of love and integrity for him. And, and also he's just a, a lovely person to chat with, but, and I learned yeah, a lot. Agreed. Once again. Wow. 
once again, wow, 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 wow. Um, before we leave, guys, so we had spoken last week briefly about wanting to give a shout out to some of our listeners who had told us about their weddings, which was so fun for us to read on Instagram. Our listener, Melissa, who's so great and has been also, we've been front row participants in her like sourdough journey. This week yeah. she baked hot dog buns, something that I never thought a home baker could bake. But she and her husband, she sent us the cutest photo of she and her husband. They had a Scrabble cake, which yes. as a fellow Scrabble fanatic, I was like, that's actually my dream. So it was like a two tiered thing. And the entire outside looked like a Scrabble board had been wrapped around it. It was so cute. Oh my God. So cute. And so unique to them. And they're, I mean, that's just, that's bold. That's, <laughs> that's bold. It's a great cake. It is. <laughs> I mean, so like, cute. Is, so cute. I love Scrabble. Yeah. And then our listener, Perry, also got married during COVID. And it sounded so sweet. She sent us such a nice story and pictures of her and her husband. And it just sounded like the perfect thing for them much like you're writing, Sophie, to do it now and to not have to deal with the worries and the expenses and everything and the stress that can build up and just to have it be super special, just the two of them. Yeah. Um, well, and it was like, basically their option was having, was doing the ceremony in a parking lot wearing masks because that was what the officiant could do. And she was like, mm, actually, I think I'm okay. I don't necessarily want like a proper wedding, but that's just not going to cut it. No. So they did it at home. And then her husband just went into the garden and cut daffodils. And then the cake was matching with the daffodils, which is adorable, gorgeous. Lemon curd and vanilla buttercream and white and yellow decorations that match the flowers. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. And then my favorite part was that uh, they had macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese from a box for dinner. Right. You know what? It's like... It's, and they had slippers yeah. on the whole time. It's perfect. Yes. That's so, I think, like a part of the having a night ethos, which is like, it's not about having the foie gras, although having had some foie gras at a recent wedding, I can't complain, but it, that's because you wanted it. You know, if you want mac and cheese, that, that's that's how you're going to have your wedding night. Let's, exactly. let's do it. And it did crack me up. She was like, regrets. I basically forgot how to put on makeup during quarantine and I didn't use mascara, which is usually my last step. I didn't even realize until I went to wash my face, which cracks me up because I feel like I know, I know that feeling so well. I look at my makeup application lately and I'm like, what am I doing? Huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Forgotten everything. Anyway. So thank you guys for sharing those sweet, sweet personal stories with us. Anyway, so guys, guys, thank you for listening and please continue to reach out to us and share your own stories. We'd love to, to hear about what your cooking and life journeys are. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Maury. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, Sophie. And we will be back again next week, guys. Have a great one. Bye.